Um, so hello and welcome to the Flucoma podcast where today I'm talking with oboist Neve Dell. So Neve is currently undertaking a PhD in contemporary performance at the University of York. Um, she's played all over the world from Australia where she graduated from the Sydney Conservatorium of Music in 2016 to Frankfurt where she participated in the International Ensemble Modern Academy Masters Programme in 2017 to Strasbourg, where she is a member of the new music collective, Love Music. Uh, she's currently working on a piece called Spectral Breathing Apparatus with Stephen De Filippo, funded by the APRA Ancos's Art Music Fund. So uh, you may have seen Neve perform at the second Flucoma concert at Dialogues Festival 2021. Uh, she performed a piece for oboe and live electronics that she co-created with composer Alex Harker called Drift Shadow. So today we're going to learn a bit about Neve's practice and approach to performance and learn more about her experience creating and performing this piece which uses some of the Flucoma tools. So Neve, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Um, so, before we talk about uh, the piece, Drift Shadow, um, I think it'd be really interesting to discover more about your general approach to musicking. So, you've been playing the oboe for many years and you're currently writing PhD about it. So, uh, perhaps you could start by just talking a bit about your approach to playing and performance in general. Yeah, so like you said, I've been playing for, I think it's nearly 20 years now, which seems like a really long time um, and despite what you said about I have had you know I did my masters with Ensemble Modern and I play a lot of contemporary music now I would say that my practice still really comes from this kind of like classical orchestral training um, which was for many years like the track that I was really like aiming to be on um, and so I'm doing a PhD in contemporary performance, which is really where the focus of my practice is now. And in particular, I'm really interested in pieces that are very experimental, that undermine those kind of tastes and habits that were formed by that like super classical conservatoire training. So basically I'm really like right now into playing pieces that kind of scoop out all those habits and tastes and then replace them with something different but like what's left behind is still this kind of uh, shell of a classical oboist like in the same shape so the way I touch the instrument and the way I hold the instrument brings me into a certain sphere that often comes into I don't want to say conflict but like certainly some sort of resistance with the things that these like experimental pieces are asking me to do and so like my approach is that that resistance is a source of musical meaning and, you know, through deconstructing some of the kind of core tenets of what I was taught to understand as like good technique and good oboe sound, things like the connection of like the hands and the mouth, certain kinds of tone production and air support and stuff, um, that that introduces like musical meaning to the way I interpret the piece. And so I'm, I'm really currently playing a lot of, wacky weird pieces that make sounds that I've not really made before and that's yeah that's where I'm at with playing the yoga right now yeah so um I'm not gonna lie I'm not a massive expert on on oboe or any kind of oboe repertoire that kind of stuff but maybe for those who are listening who may know a bit more um, about what they're talking about in terms of oboe what what um do you have any specific pieces that um can sort of give us an idea about the kind of things you've been exploring in um, recent years? Um, so my first, my way into this PhD was Marc-Andre's IV-5, which is a piece which has a lot of stuff off the reed. And when the reed is in, it's a lot of non-standard treatment of multiphonics. Um, and that sort of led me to think about, uh, like coming into contact with these kind of unusual ways of playing. And then I've taken it quite a lot further with, you know, Alex's piece, which um, undermines a lot of the ideas, well, not really ideas, a lot of the habits that I have with kind of tone production in particular. Um, and also The Green Is Or by Aaron Cassidy, which delineates, uh, there's a separate stave for mouth and hands. So everything you kind of 
as an oboist, you were really, well, for me at least, I don't want to speak for all oboists, but I think that we spend a lot of time <laughs> cultivating like a, a very uh, innate connection between like articulation and fingering. And then to separate that and to have times where you're uh, moving your fingers, but you're actually the mouth staff has rests or you're, um, you're, you're fingering something that should be really high and therefore requires a certain type of air support normally, but the, the, the stave is having you drop your air support all the way off. You know, that sort of like, um, I don't want to say confusing, but kind of a slightly jarring treatment of, uh, you know, playing the oboe. And then this piece that you mentioned, I was working on spectral breathing apparatus, removes the reed entirely. So the reed is never put in the instrument. And it sort of uh, introduces a lot of kind of phonetic, phonetic elements. So um, that sort of aspect of my like personal voice coming through in different ways is, is quite unusual where like normally the sounds that you make are all logo sounds and then suddenly you have to like express things that might have some semantic meaning but actually don't. And that is quite an intimate kind of thing. Um, and the last piece I'm working on is with Des Clark. And it's a piece where every time I play it, the notation is different. So it kind of un undermines, I guess, that idea of like what uh, preparation can be in a musical performance, what, what a musical piece actually is. Is it like a selection of notes or is it a performance? Like what does it mean when the notes change every time? So, yeah, lots of... Um, Lots of different angles to get at this kind of uh, concept of musical meaning being produced by a sense of uh, friction, I guess, between what my body and my oboist's mind want me to do and what the kind of piece is prompting me to do. Yeah. Um, so you talked about uh, in the f in that first piece you were talking about um, sort of non-standard treatment of multiphonics, and obviously. We'll get to it um, quite quickly, but um, multiphonics is going to be quite an important part of Jif uh, Shadow piece. Um, so, kept sort of coming in to this kind of new music um, realm that you're dealing with in in the PhD and into into this piece. What kind of counts as a standard treatment of a multiphonic? How do we encounter multiphonics in a more classical uh, oboe repertoire um, and how how are these going to be treated in a more non-standard way for someone who doesn't really again know a huge you're amount about super uh, into multiphonics yeah, that's strange <laughs> um, <laughs> so i would say a standard treatment of multiphonics is just where you play it in the same way that you would play a standard pitch so obviously you can vibrate on it you can crescendo decrescendo you can even trill that's totally fine but everything to do with your like air support and um to some extent your fingering and stuff like that is wouldn't if you were to take out the multiphonic and put a single pitch in its place it wouldn't seem super out of place in you know <laughs> what i would call standard new music which kind of you know is is pieces that don't have you know a very like experimental approach or even in orchestral music so um, there are certainly orchestral pieces, you know, concertos and stuff that use a lot of multiphonics, but I would say they use standard treatment of multiphonics because they're played in quite a, uh, I'm trying really hard to avoid saying normal, but, you know, in a normal way for an oboist. Um, whereas these pieces, and in particular Alex's piece, um, use techniques that if I played it on a single pitch, you know, my teachers from university would be like oh my god what are you doing that's not how I taught you how to play the oboe but in a good way obviously like so there are lots of playing around on the precipice of like sounding air and what I would call underblowing where the the air pressure is not enough to produce to vibrate the reed or to vibrate the reed in a way that produces the like intended uh pitch or pitches um a lot of very very wide glissandi with my jaw, which is um, not something I would do in standard practice. Um, 
and then kind of things like pitch selection where you again with your jaw you're kind of and also with your air pressure you're manipulating the the multiphonic to single out one pitch either usually it's either at the top or, or at the bottom of the cluster um and then also the introduction of kind of spit and saliva into the reed and that sort of thing to get different degrees of noisiness to manipulate the timbre because i think when we're playing standard repertoire there are there is a certain range of timbral goals um and then when i say like non-standard treatment i'm usually referring to like expanding that range of timbral goals well beyond the scope of what is uh usually acceptable in, in standard repertoire i hope that makes sense yeah yeah no certainly um and i was also wondering because obviously another important part of the piece that we're going to talk about um, is uh, live electronics. Um, so I was wondering if you'd had much experience working with electronics, any live processing on your oboe? Uh, kind of none at all, actually. I don't think. I mean, I've when sorry, that's a massive lie. When <laughs> when we were in Yema in Frankfurt, we certainly did you know pieces with tape parts. I'm sure we did stuff with live electronics, but never solo. Also in love music, we work a lot with electronics, but again, uh, I'm trying to think, I, yeah, I haven't played anything solo and particularly nothing as in depth as Drift Shadow, because I think that is a piece where, you know, there are different degrees of like working with electronics, aren't there? There's like um, pieces where you can kind of play and the electronics will do something and that's fine and then there are pieces where you have to be like very focused on what the electronics are doing and certainly drift shadow is one where i was extremely aware of what they were doing at all times mm. yeah um that's great so i think i'd like to talk about the piece now um so uh not only did you give a remarkable performance of the piece, um, but you also co-created it with Alex Harker. Um, so I'd like to talk about that process of development, but first, um, perhaps to give us an introduction to those who may not have heard it yet, um, maybe you could just talk to us about the piece, what it sounds like and broadly how it works. So as we've said, the piece is almost entirely multiphonics. There are some instances of single pitches, usually Inglesandy or trills or that sort of thing. But, you know, I think there are something like 100 multiphonics in the score. And I played a whole bunch of them in performance. Um, and crucially, I think uh, it should be mentioned that these multiphonics are maybe, you know, I think when people hear the word People who are familiar with oboe multiphonics might hear, you know, this is a whole piece of oboe multiphonics and they might be like, bring out the earplugs, it's going to be really loud. But these, uh, it was quite important to Alex, I think, that these were much less strident or they were treated in a way that made them less strident. So it's quite a delicate, not always, you know, quite, there are certain like more harsh moments, but the overall vibe of the piece i'll say is that it has like quite a delicate treatment of multiphonics and so it's an open form piece and i'm navigating through various uh like harmonic fields i guess designated by sections and subsections so there are major sections and then inside those sections there are certain there are a number of subsections and so the electronics which come from a big like corpus of recordings that we made of all of the multiphonics in the piece um the electronics have certain kind of characteristics or they respond to me in different ways depending on where I am in the piece. And so they track me live, which is quite a big part of our working process. And now the way I'm treating the multiphonics, as I said before, is like quite experimental. There's lots of glissandi, there's lots of pitch selection, the sort of falling off the sound or falling off the sounding air, I guess. And a lot of noisiness is introduced. Um, yeah, I think that's a pretty comprehensive summary. Yeah, um, no, it's interesting using the word strident because um, that's mm -hmm. also a word that um, Alex 
when I talked to him, it, it came up and kind of yeah, wanting to get away from that kind of strident image that we can have of of over. It's a nice way of saying really loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I know that. Um, well, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear about um, the development process. So I know that there was, I think, initially um, you worked from, from what I've come to understand is like more or less a kind of uh, standard for mo uh, for oboe multiphonics, mm. which is Peter Veal's book yep. and recordings. Um, so yeah, maybe you could talk us through the development process, um, how things went from a blank page uh, mm -hmm. up to uh, the score and the performance that we saw in Edinburgh. So I think it really started with kind of a back and forth on vibes, techniques and like potential techniques, sound worlds, I guess. So mostly I think we, we were talking about ways that we could make multiphonics more timbrely diverse. And by that, I mean kind of more gentle. Um, but also more less static and more um, with more kind of variability within a single multiphonic because like you said that the book by Peter Veal for very good reason obviously all of the recordings included a static you know forte mezzo forte kind of multiphonics and Alex was like how can we make this different how can we like bring the dynamic down or, or vary it at least um, can you do glissandos, can you trill, can you do this sort of thing, even if they're not notated in the book? And what probably is worth noting about the book is that it is a, a standard book. So what, what Peter did was um, took, you know, I think like five different types of oboes and then the main geographical read types, this is maybe getting a bit into the sticks, but there's, you know, oh, please. Uh, American oboe reads, German reads and French reads. And uh, so he tested all of those read types on all of those oboes and those, uh, I think there's like 390 or something multiphonics in the book are only those ones that were possible on every single setup. So that means that basically on my setup, there might be another thousand multiphonics possible, but because it wasn't possible using a different read type, they're not included in the book. Mm. So Alex was like, I don't really... I don't really believe the limitations of this book when it says this multiphonic is only possible at a fortissimo. Can you play it for me in like pianissimo? And I was like, no, because it says so in the book. And he was like, just try. And I was like, it's not going to work. And usually uh, it worked. Um, <clears throat> so Alex would send me like a shopping list. Actually, I found the shopping list yesterday and it said sort of things like, uh, kind of diffuse, breathy, multiphonics, um, tromba sounds, kind of various uh, kind of evocative words. And then I sent him a bunch of recordings because this was in lockdown. So we weren't, uh, although we were in a bubble together, we weren't always seeing each other. Um, so we were sending each other recordings and emails and stuff like that. And eventually kind of after I lent him the book, he worked out the various harmonic areas that he was interested in, came up with a large list of multiphonics. And then we sort of set about seeing how those techniques that we came up with gesturally, like through the shopping list system, how they would then apply to those multiphonics. And a lot of the time it was me sending recordings being like, does this sound right, Alex? And Alex really trying to, get it through my head that like right and wrong wasn't this it wasn't working the same way as it was in say like a mozart concerto or something like that like there was a much broader acceptable kind of uh range of gestures that i could do that you know were possible um and that i didn't really need to send him an email every time that i played something new and be like is that okay so yeah it was a lot of kind of back and forth, a lot of Alex trying to kind of push me to be a little bit more creative, I guess, or maybe not trying, but inadvertently doing so. And yeah, a lot of me learning how my instrument works. <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was going to ask is, so first of all, I, I think I kind of got it wrong because I had in, 
in my head this this kind of image of uh, sort of you and Alex hold up in a studio sort of going through each and every multiphonic and recording every single kind of different thing but it sounds like it was oh, much we more actually, we, we ended up doing that after things were a little bit more solidified but yeah, right it was okay two very long days in a studio going through yeah every multiphonic. yeah yeah okay so there was that and there was a kind of before that there was a stage where it was more mm. kind of him prompting you and kind of prodding you into and sort of asking playing. for solutions and yeah that's yeah. thing. okay that's really interesting um um so i was wondering yeah it's it did that kind of iterative process but also that first process do you, do you feel that you learned quite a lot about your instrument in that way did it push you to do things oh, that totally. you really hadn't done before yeah yeah i mean that it's part of the reason why this piece is so fruitful for my own phd even though it obviously has its own research context thankfully it also works out for mine um is because it um i mean there's the, the whole thing of going like off book which you know as i said before it was kind of it felt a little bit taboo to me like if the book said you know this the range of this multiphonic is mezzo forte to fortissimo and Alex asked for pianissimo. I was like, but the book says, why would the book lie? But despite also knowing that the book is just a kind of a, an average. Um, yeah, so there was that, but also the kind of uh, idea of playing, playing at the very like liminal edges of sound and spending time there instead of it being something that you minimize, because I feel like, um, particularly in standard practice that we spend a lot of time uh, working on how to not cover up, but how to smooth over the, the, I guess, like the material edges of the sound, like the bits where your instrument really comes out and your instrument doesn't want to play that high. Your reed is not particularly happy about the way you're diminuendoing, but you have to, you're learning to, to navigate that and produce sounds that, that are, I don't know that you know they adhere to a certain kind of classical music like beauty standard and then for this piece it was it was like don't cover that up let's see what happens if you underblow let's see what happens if you fall off the sound and then keep playing through that what kind of sounds are we going to hear of course we didn't use all of the sounds that we found but um a lot of the gestures uh and some of the multiphonics well, some of the multiphonics that became like my favorite multiphonics, uh, I really, we found them through like this kind of expansion of what I found to be like acceptable oboe sound production. Um, yeah, I mean, I also learned a lot about the mechanical aspects of the oboe, like stuff that I kind of knew that about how reeds and things will inf influence the production of multiphonics, but stuff that you, I don't think you can be so intimately familiar until you've played a piece with a hundred multiphonics and tried to change reads yeah. midway through. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, um, Alex, when I spoke to him, he was talking about some of the inspirations for the piece and he was talking about that kind of space, liminal space between sound and not sound and uh, talked about a trio of uh, players which the name escapes me something of pleasures i don't know if that rings a bell uh no that's it's in the article i've written about the about the piece but um yeah no it's really interesting to hear about that um and yeah so i have written uh a short article about the piece and it kind of goes into a lot of detail about the life electronics and how the mlp regression works the digital side of things the following and stuff like that but I was wondering if perhaps you could tell us um about some of the parameters uh, that you as a player had to take care of in order for this to work so from what I understand uh, different types of read are important I think also Alex um talked about on and things like that um and so because of what you were just talking about um does that mean that this piece would only work with your oboe or is, or, I mean. No, yeah. I don't think so. I have, I so, okay. So read measurements, uh, if you've ever spent time with an oboist, you know, we talk about reads all the time. So I'm sorry to, you know, add to that. Um, <laughs> but 
measurements that had incredibly marginal impacts on standard pitches. So normally my reads are 72 millimetres. The read that I used in the recording was a fraction over 71 millimetres. And the scrape length is normally one centimetre and this was nine and a half millimetres or something like that. I could not hear the difference when I was playing standard pitches. My tuner wasn't really picking up. Maybe it felt slightly higher. But I noticed when I went to, you know, that read got old and I had a new read of, you know, what I guess I would call standard measurements for what I, the reads that I make. Um, it suddenly was very, very difficult to for the electronics to follow where I was because I guess somewhere, you know, multiphonics are so complex that um, they shifted just enough for the electronics to be like, actually, I don't think you're playing what you think you're playing. <laughs> so I'm be, I'll be there playing multiphonic, you know, number 48 or whatever. And it's like, trust me, it's 52 according to my recordings. <laughs> so there was that that I, I really didn't think about before which is an oversight on my part, but, you know, I think I had this kind of Dunning-Kruger effect of, like, I've played one multiphonic. I've, what could possibly go wrong of me kind of recording all of these multiphonics? Um, so I ended up using that recording read in the concert, and although I had another read that was pretty good at detecting, I was just quite nervous about, you know, it was my first live concert for a long time and stuff. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to use the read that I know works well. So if another oboist wanted to play this piece, there is a possibility that they would have to record their own samples, I think. I haven't really talked to Alex about this. But then also, uh, maybe they wouldn't, I don't know. Because the kind of, although obviously the, the intention of the electronics is that they follow me, uh I'm, I'm trying not to say accurately but like you know where i'm playing is also where the electronics are there's also an interesting kind of push and pull between me trying to get the electronics to recognize what i'm doing and the electronics being like trust me that's not what i'm hearing so that's kind of interesting as well and i'm it's not something that i really like would find that unwelcome next time i play the piece for there to be a bit more kind of interactivity, I guess. But also in terms of parameters that I had to be aware of, um, this was like a very eye-opening piece uh, for how I understood multiphonics because, you know, I mean, I've played, I've played loads of multiphonics before. Like I've played a multiphonic study. I've played countless pieces in Frankfurt that have a bunch of them but when they're lined up in certain sequences it, you really come to understand how uh how diverse they are i guess in ways that you probably don't well i certainly didn't notice when they came kind of in single iterations um and certain qualities of specific multiphonics were incredibly unpredictable even on my like good recording read um and so developing a memory, I mean, you play a standard pitch and you can kind of tell immediately whether you played the right pitch or not, right? I mean, within reason, like particularly in, a, in relation to other pitches. Whereas sometimes I was playing a multiphonic and I had no, no idea if the right thing was coming out. Um, and I'd have to, I, had, I still have the folder of all of the recordings um, on my laptop and I'd have to sit there and play it and then play it, like play it on my laptop, play it on my oboe, play it on my laptop, and then try and memorise what that multiphonic sounded like, how it feels to play it, what the setup of my embouchure, of my air pressure, um, and, you know, the kind of like even sometimes things like the way I had to hold the instrument in my mouth, like uh, in relation to like top and bottom lip and stuff like that. So I'd have to try and memorise that. And then I'd move on to another multiphonic where I have to try and memorise that. And then I'd completely forget the previous thing. So it was this new process of relearning my instrument uh, in a lot of different ways, like every single day, which was very pretty interesting, actually. Like feeling like 
I'm playing something and I have no idea if it's the right thing. It's not a feeling that I felt on the oboe for a long time. So that mm. was really fun, actually. Yeah, it's no, that is interesting. Certainly seems to uh, be useful in terms of your kind of research interests, in mm. terms of deconstructing your relationship with the, your past relationship with the oboe and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I'd like to talk about performance now. Um, so first of all, um, I mean, I really enjoyed it, but um, I'd like to hear how you um, experienced your edition at Dialogue. So there are a few elements, of course, that made it fairly unique. So, you know, due to the, the, the pandemic, there were very little people in the room. It was being streamed. Um, and of course, it was the premiere of the piece. Um, it was quite fresh off the, pe off the press. Um, so I was wondering if you enjoyed the performance, were you satisfied by it? Um, how did how did you feel it went for you? Yeah. I mean, it was my first solo performance in quite a while and certainly the first time I'd premiered something in a, a long time. Um, so that was very surreal. And I remember feeling like, um, like the performance felt like a rehearsal like i wasn't at the very start i remember being like oh, come on this is a performance like because i just hadn't done that for so long but i really enjoyed it um obviously i love performing um it was really rewarding to to perform the premiere of a piece you know by a friend as well that's like i felt like a, an immense privilege um and on a project as well that I've been around for a few years, obviously living in Huddersfield and yeah, in a room full of people that I knew and respected and liked. And it felt very, it was a nice way to get back into performing actually. And the room was great. I really loved the acoustic and the, the space itself. So yeah, I had a, a really good time. Yeah, that's great. Um, so in terms of actually performing the piece, um, so in the interview I did with Alex, um, and, and this is interesting, again, um, thinking of, of, of some of the, um, the research interests you talk about earlier. So he specifically said that he was looking to give the performer freedom um, so that they're not having to correspond to some kind of time measurement, um, which is getting in the way of them um, responding to their instrument. Um, so, uh, that specifically was talking about um, the nature of the score, which isn't linear. It's kind of got these um, blocks of suggestions, um, or rather he notates behaviors, I believe is yeah. the way he talks about it. Um, so I was wondering if, if you've felt that kind of freedom during, the, during this piece, um, and if so, how it compares to um, how that compares to previous performance experiences you may have had um, in the past? Yeah, I mean, Alex, at the very start of our collaboration, he said, like, how, how much do you want notated? And I was like, do whatever you like. Um, because I was like, I mean, of course, you know, whatever, I can, I'll, I'll deal with whatever comes. Like, I'm happy to do anything and just keen to get, get this out there um and then i remember <laughs> poor alex he sent me the score and i sent him this email and i was like i don't know how to read this this is really stressing me out I, what how do i even progress through one of these sections like what is going on and he's like well uh, i mean it's fine we can talk about this but i just want to make sure like you did say <laughs> you did say that it was okay if it was open form and i was like yeah, but I just don't understand. And it's because um, I, this sense, this amount of freedom of, I, I'm not, a, I don't really have much experience playing open form pieces or, you know, even anything with like a graphic element to it, which this piece kind of has in terms of the way it, it notates those behaviours. Um, and so I kind of was looking for like a linear way through the piece that didn't exist. And it took a long time for me to understand that or to feel, I guess, feel com not comfortable, but to feel like I could actually carry that out in a tasteful way <laughs> because I was like, I don't really have an aesthetic sense for like the passing of time. And like, it's, it's taken care of usually. It's like, okay, you spend one and a half beats on this note 
and then you move on to this note for three beats and then you know it's all kind of taken care of so this sense of it, the freedom was certainly there like and it was quite alien um and that as a result i think it was quite an exciting thing to experience so firstly learning my own kind of gestural preferences my like tendencies learning how to improve on them because I, th I think this is a natural thing with wind instrument players in particular. Everything tends to last one breath and then you take another breath and then you do the same amount of time. And then, you know, so learning how to undermine that and not just play a piece of breaths. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this can kind of improve in the future as well, because there are certainly aspects to do with that freedom that I would like to, uh, build on and, and that sort of thing because i do feel like there was a sense of like not performance panic but like just kind of you know when you kind of lose that 10 percent of an edge when you're in performance because you're kind of stressing a little bit so i'm looking forward to seeing what i can what how i can learn from that freedom a little bit more in the future yeah yeah that's really interesting so i am really interested to know how that kind of that freedom fits into at the same time this piece which is very challenging um in terms of the multi performing the multiphonics and in terms of um deconstructing your relationship with the instrument and stuff but and so i suppose the freedom kind of allows you to focus on other things that um that that would be more interesting i suppose um in terms of of making the the multiphonics, um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And you talked about a piece at the beginning um, where the score changes uh, mm. every time. Was that before or after this piece? We started that piece. We Des and I talked about that piece before, but I've not yet performed that piece. So I, in the timeline of my PhD, I would consider it after because it's right. And so how did done after. how does the score um in that situation compare to the to the score here? When when you say it changes every time, what what's the system? Well Des would generate a new score. Um I feel like he's using like maybe super collider. I actually don't know. But um it's also partly graphic, so he's developed a notation system that in one kind of note head unit it it contains information about dynamic uh, kind of if there's any kind of glissandi or like that sort of thing and also there's uh, something else like certain timbre qualities so the scores are very very different because the only well, the only part of Alex's score that uses standard notation is just the notation of the pitches for the multiphonics. And that's just for the purposes of, you know, uh, maybe being able to be like, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. And then, because it could really be like just a set of fingerings, um, but having the multiphonics there allows me to kind of cross check with the veal and also for other oboists who are, potentially going to play the piece in the future. Um, whereas Dez's piece is uh, scrolling, it's a video score. So I can't even look ahead and kind of do some quick like prediction practice in my head. I see, you know, like three bars at a time and it scrolls across and it's um, much, it's standard, but it's also not standard. So there is a staff and there is kind of note heads, but then he has this kind of graphical um system that he has devised which is quite different um but yeah so i suppose the yeah that that kind of score is forcing you to kind of look at your relationship and deconstruct your relationship with the oboe in different ways so yeah the, the freedom that um the score of drift shadow allows you allows you to 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 anticipate other things in, in terms of that relationship. Yeah, it allows me to kind of spend more time in certain spaces um, rather than having to <laughs> move on. I mean, I spent the, the piece in performance was longer than I intended it to be um, because I was loving spending time in all those 
little corners and things like that. Um, but I mean, also this kind of freedom is something that is one of those aspects of resistance that I was talking about. So like I said, I was always asking Alex, like, is this right? Like, okay, I'm going to play this section like this. Is this right? And he'd be like, yeah, it's, it's all right. Just, it's all going to be right. Whatever you do is pretty much right. Um, and this kind of idea of like imparting, because when you navigate through something in an open form way, you're automatically, as you spend more time in some things and less time in others, you're kind of implying that well, you're just imparting your taste on it, aren't you? Like you're saying like, I love this sound. I'm going to spend more time in this sound, but I'm not, you know, I'm just going to gloss over this particular sound. And because the piece is, you know, I say there's a hundred multiphonics in it, but a lot of them are alternatives. So I certainly didn't play all of them in performance. Um, so I'm imparting kind of this aspect of my own taste on a piece in a way that I don't really have experience. You know, it, we talk a lot about like music being very creative and like certainly playing a piece of standard repertoire can be extremely creative, but the parameters of creativity are much, they're very different in standard practice. Whereas here it's like, not only did I have some kind of contribution to the sound order of the piece in the way I like curated those recordings in the back and forth of the development stage with Alex, but I'm also choosing what I spend time in. And I'm, and that freedom is quite, it feels a little bit vulnerable, you know, like I, I don't normally get up on stage and say like, here are all of my musical tastes, listen to them. Like normally I'm like, here's someone else's piece. I hope you enjoy it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's very interesting. And as I say, very fruitful for my own research. Yeah. It's great. And would you find yourself, obviously through rehearsals and things, would you find yourself tending towards playing the same things in some of the sections or? Yeah, there were some out? aspects of that to do with um, ease, <laughs> uh, which I also, I would try and undermine um, when I've recognised it. For example, I know I played, there's a subsection called loops and I just had a sequence of multiphonics that I loved. And I think I played it in performance, but I remember in some of the rehearsals, I was like, I'm not gonna do it this time. I'm gonna give the other multiphonics a chance, but I just went back to it in performance. But um, yeah, and then there were some things that tended to come to, to be more like uh, accurate for the electronics, like to help the electronics kind of anchor in a certain place. So I, you know, for example, I think I remember multiphonic like 48 being quite a one that was like quite easily recognized. So if, if it came up and I had to like get the electronics back to the right subsection, I'd be like oh, 48, I could play 48. It's going to know where I am. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, but I, I really enjoyed the kind of um, uh, ability to, to try new things every time. But also that was kind of stressful because that's, you know, repeatability is like what standard practice is all about. Like yeah. knowing exactly what's going to happen under the circumstances that you're going to put your instrument through <laughs> at yeah. any time. It's kind of like, yeah. And sort of not having that predictability or repeatability is quite uh, strange. I would yeah. say. It's a really interesting situation when what you're, deciding to play is emerging from this mix of of ease of playing of wanting to play something different of technical limitations of wanting to make sure that it knows where you are of yeah yeah no that's it's a it's a really interesting and i assume quite unique position that it puts you in as a, as a performer yeah. having to kind of navigate those different um those different preoccupations um so in an interview that you gave about the piece um, that's on the Flucoma YouTube channel, um, mm. a presentation about the liminal spaces, uh, you talked about uh, the computer's remarkable uh, granular listening ability mm. and that it hears things that uh, you don't tend to hear. Um, and you even talked about its sentience. 
so you've talked about this kind of give and take and the nature of the electronics on that kind of spectrum between reactive electronics and interactive electronics mm. and stuff. So I was wondering um, if perhaps you could develop more on that kind of experience you had with it and, you know, maybe put it into perspective, for example, playing with other humans who have a much less granular listening ability and how, how that compared. Well, I guess um, the main thing, as I said before, when I was talking about reads, um, it would often pick up on things that I was like, are you serious? Like, they sound exactly the same to me. And, you know, I'd even send recordings to Alex and he'd be like, they sound pretty similar. Like, is it really not? Yeah. And I, I would be quite confused because, you know, added to the kind of uh, unfamiliarity of a lot of these sounds and the way they felt as I was producing them. Um, I was quite shocked that, you know, the electronics would be detecting one fingering as another. Um, and as a result, I guess, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I, I know I talked about kind of the sentience, but there is, it, it really, there's no sense of push and pull in terms of me me meeting the threshold at which the electronics would say like, yes, I agree that you're playing multiphonic 48. Um, whereas like in any kind of human situation, you know, the electronics threshold is like this, my human threshold is like this. And, you know, my co, my human collaborators threshold would probably be the same. And even if I was slightly outside of that, we would probably have some kind of unspoken agreement that like, yeah, that's going to be fine. Um, as you normally do with like intonation and stuff like that. We obviously strive for perfect, amazing intonation, but we understand that like we're human and, and things, you know, there's a, there is a threshold at which it's good enough. There was none of that really in the electronics, particularly um, in some cases, I know the, well, the threat, as I understand it, the threshold at which like uh, the electronics kind of would say like, oh, I'm really, what's it called? The, the kind of confidence <laughs> threshold. Um, I'm an instrumentalist, obviously. <laughs> um, was quite high because there were some multiphonics that sounded quite similar to one another, like, um, because that's part of the piece, like Alex wanted me to have various options that sounded quite similar, but had timbral differences, for example. Um, so the threshold had to be quite high, um, which was kind of difficult to navigate sometimes because it meant that I also have to be really, really accurate to my own previous recordings and that I guess Im impacted the ways I was able to manipulate the gestures so in some cases I had a lot of leeway because it was the only multiphonic within a certain spectral range or whatever intonation range um, and therefore I could do a lot of movement on it and stuff like that without worrying that it was going to jump to another section and then there were some other multiphonics that I had to kind of learn and remember that they were susceptible to to skipping so yeah i think working with humans is, a, is a, you can do a little bit more like like eye contact kind of like go back <laughs> you're in the wrong spot whereas you know the electronics sometimes at times i had to follow it and say like oh, okay yeah we're going to be in this section now yeah. it's time to move on <laughs> That's great. Um, so probably coming up close on time, um, perhaps one question uh, to sort of take a bit more of a broader stance. I mean, obviously we've been talking about this for more or less the whole time, but uh, yeah, I was just wondering if there was kind of something to take home that this in regarding how this experience of developing the piece and performing this kind of piece um, May have informed your practice as a whole and may have developed your your approach to, to to playing in general has it i mean so obviously you talked about um discovering things about um the mm -hmm. sonic possibilities of the oboe um, that you that you um hadn't been aware of before but yeah i was wondering if there was anything in your practice um 
that may have evolved significantly from your experience with this? Well, I think, as I've said, because it's the first kind of majorly open form piece that I encountered or performed, um, it's very much contributed a sense of like, uh, well, I guess like confidence in my ability to present my own aesthetic decision making, I guess, um, and to um, stand up in front of an audience and be like, yeah, this is this is what I think sounds good rather than um, this is what a composer has decided sounds good and this is my best effort at reproducing that, which is, um, I don't know, quite, I feel like that's quite a big thing for my practice um, because it diverts so much from what I'm used to doing. Um, and particularly, I mean, yeah, the biggest thing for me would be the expansion of, of the way I play the instrument or the, the things that I think I can do on the instrument. Um, and that's also had a, an effect on the subsequent pieces in my PhD research um, because, you know, where maybe someone would approach me and say, like, okay, like, I really want this quiet sound on the instrument. What can you do? And I'd be like, I can play, like, triple p if you if you pick the right note you know <laughs> um now i can I, f I feel more kind of experimental about saying like well why don't we take the read out why don't we just not put the read in at all or why don't we have this like tiny like spitty sound that maybe well i've certainly not really seen you know performed on the oboe that frequently and and that sort of thing so uh I would just say that I have like a little bit more adventurousness now because of the kind of the ways that Drift Shadow and the process of working on Drift Shadow expanded my kind of understanding of, I guess, the scope of my practice. Yeah. So it's mm. been awesome. That's good to hear. So I think we can say that it's it has been quite a positive experience. Then. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Enjoy. Great. Um, so, uh, well, thank you so much for that. That was really, really interesting. Um, and you know, I'm not, uh, I wasn't an oboe nerd before this, but, uh, no, I think <laughs> you've, you've converted me to wanting to find out more about various read sizes and stuff like that. But no, no, it was, it was really interesting. Um, one thing I, uh, noted that I must say, otherwise, um, I should probably be severely scolded um it was of course an nlp classifier and not a regressor but um alex hughes in the piece so uh, of course Can't just put that. yeah just putting the the uh, the record straight on that so uh neve i'll be putting um all the various links to the various things and people that we've been talking about um down below this um but for now thank you so much uh for your time it was really interesting and uh Speak to you again soon. Thanks, Jacob.